Oh, Lasso. I said we would uh, vote today to see whether you wanted to have more guided meditations. Changed my mind. <laughs> you don't get a vote. I've decided to become dictator. <laughs> and we'll finish the cycle we began. And so we'll go Monday through Thursday, finish off the cycle. And then for the final few days, then it will be silent, silent meditations. Uh, so, so sorry. But just once in a while I feel this irrepressible urge to be a dictator. <laughs> and I'll tell you what I'm going to dictate. And that is some distinctions that are enormously important, and if one doesn't get them, one can waste an enormous amount of time. Or at least not use it to the greatest benefit. And you might recall one of my favorite, very short stories pertaining to His Holiness Dalai Lama when he was asked whether it's necessary to have a guru to achieve enlightenment, and his answer was no, but it can save you a lot of time. Okay? So again, I didn't come here to be a guru, but I'd be very happy if I can save you some time to draw some very sharp demarcations between practices that can easily be blurred, and if we blur them, then we may wind up with none of them. Okay? So this morning we're going to go into awareness of awareness. This practice has a noble heritage, and you can see the sources, so it's not just my say-so. My say-so means nothing. I have no authority. But in the Pali Canon, it's referred to, as you may recall, as the Vijnana Kasina, one of the ten Kasinas, and it is simply consciousness of consciousness. And the Buddha referred to this as the most profound of shamatha methods. In the Mahayana tradition, it is taught both in the Chittamatra and in the Madhyamaka traditions. They have different interpretations, there's no question about it, about what exactly is going on and whether a single moment of awareness can cognize itself. But this is philosophical disputation. In terms of sheer method, I don't see any difference at all between a Yogacara, a Jitamatra approach, a Madhyamaka approach. There's debates which you can read about in the ninth chapter of Shantideva's A Guide to the Bodhisattva Way of Life. But again, these are philosophical debates about the interpretation of what's going on in this. But the Madhyamikas, such as Tsongkhapa and others, do not refute what is kind of irrefutable, and that is, it is possible to be aware of awareness. So, Jitamatrans practice it, the Madhyamikas practice it, Tsongkhapa teaches it, and my primary source here, although I draw from multiple sources, primary source for the, these four days starting today is, of course, natural liberation, a, an earth therma discovered in something, I think it was the 14th century, by Kamalingba, and it's attributed to Padmasambhava. Okay? So that's our practice for today, but now to draw some sharp and very important distinctions. And that is, first of all, this awareness of awareness is naturally, since it's a shamatha practice, implements the, that is, utilizes and refines the mental faculty of mindfulness. In Pali, sati, Sanskrit, smriti, Tibetan, temba, Japanese, nen. In all of these languages, and that is in, Ter in Theravada Buddhism, Indo-Tibetan Buddhism, and East Asian Buddhism, in, in Chinese, I believe it's nien, nien, N-I-E-N. In all of these schools, all South, Southeast, Central, and East Asian Buddhism, the primary connotation of mindfulness is recollection. There's no, they do not differ on that. They all have the primary connotation of recollection. Uh, not just moment-to-moment -moment awareness in the present moment, but recollection, which can be applied in different ways, right? And we, as you, as you well know, since we're coming to the end of this retreat, 
retrospective, present-centered, and prospective recollection. Yeah? So I asked, for example, Paok Sayadaw, one of the most foremost meditation masters in Burma today, or in Myanmar today, when I was teaching at uh, the, oh, be- uh, the Insight Meditation Society, the, the Buddhist Study Center there, several years back. I had the good fortune that he was visiting, he was teaching there at the same time. And so I had a one-on-one meeting with him, and I asked him, I said, you know, nowadays many people believe mindfulness is only present-centered awareness. Is this true? Is this true of the Buddhist tradition? And he said, no, that's very superficial. It's very superficial. Mindfulness is retrospective. It goes to the past, the present, and to the future. To think it's only present-centered is superficial. I remember even his pronunciation, superficial, superficial. He was speaking in English. So, so this means that the Buddhist definition is at variance with the definition that is almost universally embraced by psychologists who are teaching mindfulness-based interventions. And their definition is very largely inspired by, or simply, if not simply informed by, uh, the, the writings of a very dear friend of mine, who's also a very good man, uh, John Kabat-Zinn. So I thought I would give you his definitions. I have the two of them here that I just picked up from his books. What is mindfulness? It is moment-to-moment, non-judgmental awareness, cultivated by paying attention in a specific way that is in the present moment. And as non-reactively, as non-judgmentally, and as open-heartedly as possible. So it's very nice. It's a very nice definition. It's not a Buddhist definition, but it is defining a very helpful way of attending. Okay? Just to hammer it in, I'll give you another definition also by him. What is definition? It is the awareness that emerges through paying attention on purpose in the present moment and non-judgmentally to the unfolding of experience moment by moment. So again, it's a very nice definition. Very useful. And its usefulness is not just an opinion. Uh, it is scientifically established that I don't know how many, it has to be score, at least dozens, if not scores and scores of studies now have shown that when people practice this type of mindfulness, it's very helpful for alleviating stress. Uh, when applied in cognitive behavioral therapy, very helpful for alleviating depression, uh, alleviating a wide variety of physical problems, at least alleviating the symptoms of them. Um, so overall, it's just a very helpful definition. John himself does not proclaim to be a Buddhist. He is not a Buddhist. This is not a Buddhist definition. And when he presented his findings back in 1990 to the Dalai Lama during a minor life meeting, and all the benefits, the scientifically established benefits, then His Holiness was asked by my uh, former mentor, one of my mentors at Stanford, uh, what do you think about that, Your Holiness? What do you think about that? And His Holiness says, it's very good. Just don't mistake it for Buddhism. John isn't a Buddhist. He doesn't say it's Buddhist. And so all of, we're all on the same page. And I think what John is doing mar- is marvelous. Uh, what some other people do is not so marvelous when they take his definition or something very similar to it and say, this is the Buddhist definition. Well, no, it's not. And for people to think that you can, something is Buddhist just because you say it's Buddhist. Um, killing ants with a fly swatter is not Buddhist. It doesn't matter whether you think it's Buddhist. It's just, it's not Buddhist. You may be a Buddhist and kill ants with a fly swatter, but that doesn't make killing ants with a fly swatter Buddhist. And I'm giving a silly example there that's not remotely like mindfulness. But just to say something is Buddhist doesn't make it Buddhist. And to take John's definition, which one likes a lot, and because one likes it a lot, say it's Buddhist, is illegitimate. I mean, it's, it doesn't make any sense. You can't, something doesn't become Christian or Buddhist or Freudian just because you, you like it or you find it helpful. So 
This has, however, been, especially in the Vipassana tradition, been adopted as, by many as a definition of mindfulness, and then, which is erroneous. I mean, there are definitions multiple, and I've given a whole bunch of them from the Theravada, from Pali Canon, from the Theravada tradition, from the Sanskrit and so forth. They're all very, very similar. They overlap, and they're all totally different from this. Um, so that's one point of confusion. Because mindfulness, the Buddhist definition of mindfulness is much, much richer. It has a core ethical component, which this does not, not explicitly anyway. Um, and it's past, re past relevant to past, relevant future. Even in the practice of shamatha, as we will do very shortly, not that shortly, but very shortly, uh, in awareness of awareness, mindfulness has to come in in three, three different modes. It's not just that. Number one, when you're doing the practice, you have to remember what were the instructions. Not just remember, remember them at the beginning of the session, but all the way through. If you forget the instructions, if you forget what to do, then you're no longer doing the practice. So it has to be retrospective. Right? Then, if you're right there in the present moment, you need to, maintain, you need to continue not forgetting awareness which is very easy to forget as the mind drifts off to some object as if by centrifugal force flung off to thoughts, sensory impressions, and so forth. So in the present moment, non-forgetfulness. You found your object, don't forget it. That's the essence of mindfulness. In the Buddhist definition, that's present-centered mindfulness. But now as you're cruising along, you also need to have a prospective mindfulness. And that is, if you start to just space out and sit there with without kind of knowing anything, kind of just blank. What should you do, Jacob? <laughs> yeah, arouse your attention. How do you recognize that your mind is just becoming spaced out, dull, nebulous, vacuous? You use your introspection. Yeah, excellent. Outstanding. <laughs> so when you start the session, you need to, re you need to have this prospective memory should dullness, spaced out, nebulous, blank-mindedness occur during the course of this session, I need to recognize it with introspection. Having recognized it, I need to apply an antidote. This is an antidote. I need to arouse my intention to do so, and I shall do so. That's all prospective memory. Right? And if you don't have that, your, your practice is going to be sloppy forever, which means you won't achieve shamatha, vipassana, dzogchen. You're not going to achieve anything. You're just going to sit there with sloppy meditation. So, all three of those together. That is the connotation of East Asian Buddhism, Theravada Buddhism, Indian Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism. There is no school of Buddhism that says that John's wonderful definition of a particular type of mindfulness is the Buddhist definition. Is it incompatible? Are there, are there no practices in Buddhism where John's, the kind of mindfulness John pr promotes is useful? Absolutely it's useful. Yes, it can be, definitely. It just, there's a lot more to it than that, right? Now, but again, the error is to simply equate that's all there is to Buddhist mindfulness, because that's not the Buddhist definition of mindfulness at all. There's another major error that's crept in recently, over the last 40 years, and that is something, some, another type of mindfulness or practice that's now called, also called, being called Buddhist, and again with no foundation. It's called, in the, in the modern Vipassana tradition, or at least modern people call it, choiceless awareness. It's often taught by Vipassana teachers. Choiceless awareness. Choiceless awareness. Well, it's got a definition essentially the same as what one from John Kabat-Zinn, uh, but I've checked with some absolutely top-notch 
Theravada scholars. I'm not one even remotely. I'm not even in the ballpark. Uh, but I have checked with top ones. Um, I don't need to, well, I will give a name. The editor of the Buddhist Publication Society. He's a monk, he's a scholar, he's outstanding. And I asked him, is there any, any basis in the whole Buddhist canon or the Theravada writings for choiceless awareness? He said, no, no basis whatsoever. That's Krishnamurti's deal. That's a Krishnamurti term, choiceless awareness. He defined it, Krishnamurti. It's his deal. It's not Buddhist at all, never was. There's no term for it in Pali or any other language, Buddhist language. There's no basis for it in, in the Pali canon, the Sanskrit canon, or what have you. It's not Buddhist at all. And yet it's often presented as Vipassana or even the pinnacle of Vipassana. Well, there's no basis for that either. So people keep on calling things Buddhist just because they like them a lot. If you look at Krishnamurti, just Google Krishnamurti and choiceless awareness, and you'll see what I'm saying is what I'm saying, which is true. And that his, his definition of choiceless awareness is pretty much a spitting image of John Kabat-Zinn's definition of mindfulness. And it's very useful. Krishnamurti was very, very, one very smart guy. Very smart guy. But what's the relationship between Krishnamurti and Buddhism? Well, I just checked out. Krishnamurti said, referring to the Buddha, nobody listened to him. That is why there's Buddhism. Nobody listened to him. That's why there's Buddhism. And so the Theravada tradition, the Zen, the Chan, the Tibetan, the Indo-Tibetan, Nagarjuna, Asanga, that's Buddhism. I mean, but they didn't listen to him. And so they're all wrong. Because Krishnamurti said he loved Buddha. He thought he was the greatest teacher of truth in all of India. He loved Buddha. But he said, of course, I am not a Buddhist, of course. That's a direct quote from Krishnamurti. Why should he be? I don't ask him to be a Buddhist. But he said, I am not a Buddhist, of course. So he's not a Buddhist, but he basically dismisses the whole Buddhist tradition by saying, nobody listened to the Buddha, that's why there's Buddhism. So Krishnamurti would seem to be claiming that he's got some special privileged access to what the Buddha really taught, contrary to all of Buddhism, because they didn't listen to him. He who lived 2,500 years after the Buddha, he got it, but the whole Buddhist tradition, all of them, didn't get it. There are a number of modern people, Buddhist atheists, Buddhist agnostics, who are taking exactly the same tack. They say all oh, the teachings of Buddha are all screwed up, muddled, obscured, distorted by religion, religious institutions, blah, blah, blah. They got it all wrong, but I have it right. And then they give their atheist version, their agnostic version. Only I have it right. And the Buddha was, wasn't religious. He didn't, really he didn't really think reincarnation was important. Um, he didn't claim to have any special knowledge. Uh, samadhi really is not possible. Uh, no, nobody realizes emptiness. Um, and by the way, I'm a Buddhist. Those are all, by the way, pretty much direct quotes from a person who regards himself as a Buddhist and refutes almost everything of the cent almost every central theme that the Buddha taught. And every central feature of his life, he refutes almost all of them and still calls himself a Buddhist. So once again, I really have no problem with being, people being non-Buddhist. The fact that Krishnamurti was not a Buddhist, that he thought the whole Buddhist, meditation, whole Buddhist tradition was mistaken, because apparently they didn't listen to him, whereas Krishnamurti was not a Buddhist, he knows how to listen to him. Um, there are certainly a lot of perplexities here. So not being a Buddhist and teaching your own stuff is perfectly fine, as John, John Kabat-Zinn does. He's not a Buddhist, he teaches his own stuff, and it's very beneficial. 
Krishnamurti wasn't a Buddhist, teaches his own stuff, cool, why not? But to take things from outside of Buddhism by people who are not Buddhist, who basically abandon even the Buddhist, whole Buddhist tradition and say this is Buddhism, this I think is not a service to anyone. It's kind of like saying, you know, I really love Freud, but of course the subconscious doesn't exist and the libido is insignificant. But I'm a Freudian. Somebody, our, our psychiatrist here is giggling. <laughs> why don't you just refute the subconscious and the libido, but why on earth do you want to call yourself a Freudian when you've just eviscerated central, absolutely central, indispensable elements of his worldview? Why do you want to call yourself a Freudian? Why don't you call yourself a Wallacean? That would be accurate. <laughs> you know, really accurate. I am who I am, and I am Popeye the Sailor Man, or whoever you want to be, you know. Why call yourself a Buddhist when you eviscerate the teachings of Buddha? Why call yourself Freud, a Freudian if you, you know, throw out the subconscious, the libido? The, and why not just throw out the id, the ego and the superego, you know, to boot? If you can just call anything Freudianism that you like. And so there's been a lot of confusion recently by people who have simply not studied sufficiently to know what they're talking about and then place themselves above Buddhist tradition and then say their teachings are the real teachings of the Buddha while ignoring all of the wisdom, the insight, the experience of the last 2,500 years of the Chan tradition, the Zen, the Theravada, the Indian, the Tibetan, the Mongolian, and so forth. So I think there's an awful lot of confusion recently, uh, which is not helpful, really is not helpful at all. And then, when we have sometimes very lovely Dzogchen teachers coming to Vipassana, te Vipassana centers, one Dzogchen teacher in particular, I know comes to one Vipassana center in particular, and she says, Dzogchen, well, a lot of the Vipassana followers love it because they hear about open presence. They hear a bit of Dzogchen view, which is, sounds pretty cool. And then they hear about open presence and say, ah, yeah, it's all one. Choiceless awareness, mindfulness, open presence, Dzogchen. We were practicing Dzogchen all along. We didn't even know it. And what they were practicing was Krishnamurti hyphen John Kabat Zinn and pseudo Dzogchen. This is why I'm not going to use the word open presence anymore. Because we, if we use the open word, I, I, like, I like the notion. I like John Kabat Zinn's definitions of his notion of mindfulness. Again, language is fluid. And it's perfectly legitimate for John to translate mindfulness in such a way. And if it makes it way, its way into the Oxford Dictionary, English Dictionary, that's fine too. It just shouldn't come under Buddhism because there's no basis for it in Buddhism. And in fact, Buddhism does have a definitions and they're very different. So it, you don't start a new school of Buddhism by turning your back on the first 2,500 years and making something totally different that is largely incompatible with the definitions of the past. That's not a new school of Buddhism. It's your own thing and that's perfectly fine, but call it your own thing. So when now in this whole context of the psychologist or John Kabat-Zinn's definition of mindfulness, Krishnamurti's definition of choiceless awareness, which is brought in and ta taught as Vipassana. Then we bring in open presence. It looked like it's just all one basic thing. And John, at one point, I was, I was on the stage with His Holiness, right next to him as a co-interpreter. John gave his definition of mindfulness and turned to His Holiness and said, Your Holiness, don't you think this is the essence of all meditation? That definition, his definition. Don't you think that's the essence of all meditation? And his holiness said, no, I don't. <laughs> you know, 
And so there's a, there's a, a gentleman's disagreement there. His holiness is a noble being. John Kabat-Zinn is a very good man, good heart. And they disagree on something. So we can all relax. We don't now all have to agree. But to put all of these things, Theravada Buddhism, Zen, Dzogchen, Krishnamurti, John Kabat-Zinn, put them all in the blender, hit high, and then say we've come out with some universal dharma, is, shall I say, silly? So... In the practice of, now I'm not going to call it open presence anymore. Number one, it's, it's a very loose translation. The Tibetan, once again, is Rikpa Choksha. And I alluded to this yesterday in the text that I've translated by Jujum Rinpoche, an awesome, an awesome Dzogchen master. Died in 1987, I think it was, 1986-87. In this text, Extracting the Vital Essence, Advice for a Mountain Retreat, he gives a brief introduction to view, and then it goes right into and it is very similar, very similar to what John was, very similar on the surface to John's definition of mindfulness. It is just wide open. It's attentive. Whatever thoughts come up, you simply attend to them without judgment, without reacting, without modifying them. Wide open. I said, well, there you go. Dujum Rinpoche just refuted you, Alan, and that it's John was teaching Dzogchen all along, and Dujum Rinpoche just corroborated that. Well, that would be true if you didn't read the first few paragraphs where he's giving the view and if you get the view, you've ascertained rikpa. Having ascertained rikpa, then you practice rikpa choksha. And I won't translate that as open presence. Number one, it's, it's not, a literal transla- not even close to a literal translation. Rikpa is pristine awareness. Choksha means letting be. So I'm going to translate this as resting in pristine awareness. Resting in pristine awareness. Now, what is pristine awareness? It is unconditioned, unborn dimension of consciousness, which is beyond all conceptual elaborations. It is the deepest dimension of consciousness that an arhat realizes only after he's dead. An arhat doesn't realize it while he's still alive. Only when his conditioned consciousness completely is terminated, dissolved, then the husk is removed and rikpa remains. It is unconditioned. And again, it's the word of the Buddha in the Pali Canon. Unborn, unconditioned, immutable, utterly transcendent of the nature of immutable bliss. That cannot be anything other than rikpa. There can't be two such critters out there, you know. And so for a person like Dujum Rinpoche, or I met some others in Tibet, utterly extraordinary beings, these extremely, well, some game me kappa, let's just use that term, these inconceivable beings who are coming in like Yangdan Rinpoche, they may from even as, as a child or as a youth, they may receive pointing out instruction from someone like Dingo Kenzu Rinpoche, who just gives them a mind-to-mind trans- transmission of the view, and right there, like Bahia achieving arhatship within a matter of minutes, they may ascertain rikpa, and then their practice is very simple. Rikpa choksha, rest in rikpa, ascertaining this deepest, unconditioned, unborn, unceasing, inconceivable dimension of consciousness beyond all dualities of subject and object, grasper and grasp 
beyond even permanent, beyond even permanence and impermanence, because it's beyond all conceptual elaborations. Rest in that with your awareness totally open in an ongoing flow of ascertaining rikpa and achieve shamatha there. Having had pointing out, as I give, you know, just jokingly giving Carissa pointing out instructions to the sensations of the breath at her nostrils. I give point out instructions. If she gets it, oh, I, I, I can ascertain it, I can ascertain it. Good, there you're pointing out instructions. Focus on that single pointedly until the acquired sign arises. So I just gave her pointing out instructions, right? We did that yesterday or two, or, or two days ago. And that really, I can give pointing out instructions on sensations of the breath. Right? Pretty impressive. But a person like Dingo Kenze, with the ripe disciple, and they're rare, can give pointy out instructions to Rikpa, break through, just because that person is so ripe, and we have so many accounts in the Pali Canon of Bahia and many others who are so ripe. I mean, Shariputra, here's what he heard. Ye dharma hetu prabhava hetunde shanda takata kyavatat pejanjiyo nerodevam vadimash ramaneya svaha. The causes of causally origin, the, the tatagata, just the two, two verses, it's the first two lines of the four-line verse, the Tathagata has taught the causes of causally originated things. He was taught, he was given, he was just heard that verse by Asaji, one of the disciples of the Buddha. He heard this, the Tathagata taught the causes of causally originated things. He just heard two out of four lines, and he achieved nirvana. He realized nirvana, he realized emptiness. How? Pratita Sambhupada. This is Tsongkhapa's great fort, maybe his greatest achievement, is showing how to realize emptiness by way of Pratita Sambhupada. He didn't originate it, but he brought extraordinary clarity to it, as did Nagarjuna and others. Here is Sariputra, hearing just those first two lines, that the Tathagata taught the causes of causally originated things, and he became a stream enterer. Direct realization of Nirvana, which is direct realization of Dharmata, Dhammadatu shunyata, realizing it by way of dependent origination. Right. And then the final two verses, and he taught the causes of their cessation as well, thus are the teachings of the great sage. So it's open presence. May I now say it's needless to say, is not the same as mindfulness as John Kabat-Zinn has defined it. It's not even close. It looks like it on the surface. The little caveat is one is practicing, open, practicing such mindfulness while resting in an ongoing flow of knowing rikpa non-dually. And the other one's just practicing open presence. The difference is between a peanut and a galaxy. And to mistake the two is a big mistake. So in one great treatise after another, by Dujum Lingba, Ledap Lingba, so many, so many, many others, Padmasambhava himself, for those who really develop an authentic motivation, a passionate yearning, hair is on fire, single-pointed, willing to give up attachment to this life. It's lost all allure. They're willing to give up safety, give up the fantasies of security, give up everything, 
and just devote themselves to practice and letting their minds become dharma. For such people, the path is clear. Achieve shamatha. You achieve that by utilizing and refining your faculty of mindfulness until your psyche dissolves into the subject consciousness or into the bhavanga, as you wish, Theravada versus Indo-Tibetan, or into the continuum of subtle consciousness, the Galupa tradition, all coming down to the same thing. But then, according to a Sangha, according to Dujum Lingba and others, so fascinating here is once your psyche, your coarse mind, has dissolved into the subtle continuum, the bhavanga, the substrate consciousness, it's at that point that you cut the rope of mindfulness. Mindfulness got you there. It was almost like, you know, pulling something with a rope until it, it, it pulls your psyche down into the substrate consciousness where it melts. And then you, to use the, the exact metaphor of Dujum Lingba, you cut the rope of mindfulness. Well, when you, once you're resting there, your mind having dissolved into the substrate consciousness and you're aware of only the substrate, what are you practicing then? As you're just resting there, enjoying having achieved shamatha for a little while. What are you practicing then? You're practicing moment-to-moment non-judgmental awareness cultivated by paying special attention in a specific way that is in the present moment and as, mo- non- as, as non-reactively, as non-judgmentally and as open-heartedly as possible. So now that you've achieved shamatha and you're no longer practicing mindfulness, which got you there, you've cut the cord of mindfulness now you practice what John Kabat-Zinn defines as mindfulness. So, it's a bit interesting. Okay. Shamatha is always selective. It's always single-pointed. There are some very fine lamas who've suggested when you're meditating, let just like 25% of your attention be on your meditative object and 75% be open, spacious, and so forth. I'm not going to refute them. I'll simply say that's not shamatha. And it's not an opinion. It's not an opinion. It's not really debatable. Because just think about the five jhana factors that are being cultivated, refined, and perfected as you're achieving shamatha. What's the fifth one? Single-pointedness. That's not 25% pointedness or 90% pointedness. Single-pointedness means 100%. The whole flow of your attention is focused single-pointedly on the object of meditation, whether it's the sensations of the breath, a Buddha image, the space of the mind and its contents, or awareness of awareness. It's 100%. It is not casual. It is not kind of gently, casually noting distractions that come up and saying, oh, hi, and then coming back again. Sometimes people call that vipassana, which is crazy. It's not vipassana, but it's not shamatha either. It's just sloppy shamatha. And so, according to the great masters of the past who have actually led their disciples to achieving enlightenment, there's a sequence here. And it's achieved shamatha. Proceed on to vipassana. That's Theravada. That's Indian. It's Tibetan. It's across the boards where there's a sequence, a distinction between shamatha and vipassana. Shamatha comes first. And then practice your vipassana, fuse it with your shamatha, and then go wherever you like. Cultivate bodhicitta, cultivate state of generation completion, texture turkya, whatever you wish. 
But the notion of, oh, no, no, we don't need to do that. Uh, that, that doesn't sound much fun. I tried it, it didn't work. I didn't, wasn't very good at it. What she should really do is do a little bit of shamatha, a little bit of vipassana, a little bit of texture and tukkel, then do a bit, a little bit of stage of generation, a little bit of stage of completion, and end it up with guru yoga. <laughs> and have a nice time. You know, I'm sorry to be a bit sarcastic here, but these are all good practices. They're all wonderful practices. But if you're doing them all simultaneously, you'll achieve none of them. And I'll end on this point. I really actually will. <laughs> Geshe Rapton spent 24 years becoming a consummate Geshe, wonderful scholar, outstanding, followed that by practicing in solitary retreat for six years. Just widely, widely, widely respected. I had the great good fortune to be translating for him for years. And he said, you know, if you practice sham vipassana without having achieved shamatha, it's very unlikely that it will bring about any deep transformation or purification of your mind. It's shamatha that enables vipassana to be powerful. So let's practice. Settle your body in its natural state, in the respiration and its natural rhythm. Calm your mind with the qualities of ease, stillness, and clarity for a little while with mindfulness of breathing.
let your eyes be open. Your awareness evenly resting in the space in front of you. But without focusing on any visual image or even on space itself. Without taking anything as an object. Without meditating on anything. Just be present. as you simply sit there, without getting caught up in thoughts, without distraction, without grasping, something may dawn upon you, and that is the experience of being aware. Simply that. Rest in that knowing, that knowing of being conscious, with no interest in any objects or appearances arising to the mind. Simply know the sheer luminosity and cognizance of being aware.
then like a membrane that contracts and expands, like a lung. Let your awareness contract and expand. Arouse, focus, concentrate your awareness inwardly, right in upon the sheer raw experience of being aware. drawing your awareness away from all appearances. And then release, utterly relax, not going out to appearances, simply releasing awareness into space while gently sustaining the flow of awareness of awareness. Contract and release, contract and release, maintaining a non-conceptual flow of awareness of the knowing of knowing. Let's continue practicing now in silence.
muscle. The Buddha's great proclamation was that there is a path to the cessation of suffering and the causes of suffering. So if you follow that path, you're a Buddhist. Enjoy the day.